talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Much of our focus, as it has been for the last five weeks now, give or take, maybe a little longer than that, is on Ukraine. And I think we can all agree with justification. The What is happening there is horrendous. It's frightening. It is uh, disconcerting, although I don't know if that's a strong enough word. But the idea that somebody, some leader of some country decides who's powerful, decides he's going to just move in and wreak havoc, I think we can, that connects with us. That idea connects with us. Not that we've experienced it, most of us, some who have come here from other places perhaps, but most of us, it's more of a, I could imagine, maybe. What happens if the Americans were to decide we're going to invade? I mean, it's like, it's a, it's it's not likely it's it's the most unlikely thing ever but you know you wonder well it raises other issues now it raises other questions and one of the big ones is about immigration and refugees because canada is in the process of opening its doors to a a reasonably large number it's trying to expedite the process in order to allow ukrainian refugees to come in here with few hurdles let's make this go as quickly as possible brian hill who's an investigative journalist with global news has written about this uh he joins us now brian thank you for the time today thank you so much one of the uh one of the real interesting questions about this is has been raised by a number of people which is you know what we seem to be moving very quickly to allow ukrainians in who are caught in this war, but there are a lot of people from other countries who are also caught in wars that it doesn't seem to move quite as quickly. I mean, is that a, I know that's being said in certain places. Is that something that's getting a ton of traction or is that something that is still around the fringes? Are people, are people starting to say what's going on or is it more still just a, a few people here and there asking that question? Um, I think it depends on who you're, who you're speaking to, obviously, and where, where their involvement with re- like with refugees uh, are or their experiences are. Uh, certainly, um, um, people who are uh, experienced in this field, who work with refugees, uh, humanitarians, and advocates, uh, uh, especially those in Europe uh, uh, and who deal with refugees that come to Canada, I think they are talking about this a lot. Um, and the very clear discrepancies that uh, have uh, arisen, uh, you know, when you when you look at the way in which Canada and other European na- Canada and other Western nations, including all of our European allies, have responded to Ukraine, uh, which, by the way, everybody says that's like ideal. This is the model. That's exactly how we ought to be responding to these sorts of crises, right? So they're not criticizing the response, saying it's not good. They're saying actually it's great, this is how we should we should open our doors to people in need like this. But what they are also saying is that it just brings about clear examples of uh, where double standards, essentially, where uh, refugees from other countries like Syria or Afghanistan or from any number of African nations that have experienced war and conflict, that they've not uh, seen that same kind of treatment, that the doors haven't been open to them. Um, and in some cases, the doors have been closed shut. Right. So the, the, these are the sort of things that folks are talking about. How different is it, though? And, and the reason I ask is because, I mean, we saw a, a, I think, a large amount, a large number of Syrians 
come to this country and, and we seem to move relatively quickly to make that happen. I was in the 30 or 40 or 50,000 number that Canada took in. It, mm-hmm. How, where is the difference between that and this? Well, so first of all, I think, uh, you know, again, with the caveat that what we're doing in Ukraine is everybody's agreeing that that's the right thing. I think the, the program for Syrians, for example, you're right. We did, Canada did welcome a significant number of Syrians, about close to 40,000 when it was all said and done, or maybe just slightly above. Um, but the, that program had a cap, for example, right? Uh, there was a limit to how much the government was willing to do. Um, and it took months, if not years, to finally bring those total number of people here. Uh, and, and so there was a long process. And, and keep in mind, there are still m- millions of Syrian refugees that are outside of their country and millions more who are displaced and have not been able to return to their homes. And this is a, more than a decade after the Syrian civil war started. Um, whereas in contrast with Ukraine, in, in particular with Canada, uh, there's the government has been quite clear that there's no limits on the number of people that are eligible to come to Canada through these new programs. Um, they've also used really innovative ways to bring people here. Uh, so they've waived a lot of the visa requirements. They've um, uh, set up this temporary. Th- so you know any anybody from Ukraine. Uh, can get a three-year temporary visa to come to Canada to live, to work, to study, um, waive fees, uh, done that sort of thing. And that's similar to what we've seen in Europe, too, where the European Union did this very unprecedented thing where they uh, implemented this temporary protection directive, which uh, essentially said anyone fleeing from Ukraine can live and work and study, go to school, whatever, access to healthcare and other social services, for up to three years. Um, that same welcome was never extended to refugees fleeing Syria, was never extended to refugees fleeing Afghanistan, or, you know, the Myanmar, for example, South Sudan, Yemen. There are a number of crises that uh, have erupted over the past decade where those refugees have not received that same kind of welcome. And I assume that the underlying, or at least one of the underlying suggestions is that race may be a factor in this. I mean, I, and that may be the case. I also wonder if, you know, the Ukraine war right now has probably been as televised, and I, and I don't just mean on television, I mean, tele, you can follow it so closely, whether it's Twitter, whether it's social media, whether it's whatever. I wonder if it's because we are just so immersed in it that that has something to do with it, or if it does go back to something as basic as race. Mm-hmm. I think it's complicated, um, and it, again, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, certainly, you're right. People have pointed to the idea that, um, well, for example, it's happened so fast. Uh, I mean, uh, now we're around 3.7, 3.8 million refugees have fled Ukraine in a month. Um, and so, like, it, it, the speed, the, the invasion, like, the speed of the invasion and the speed with which people fled uh, it was uh, pretty extraordinary, relative, even relative to other very, very uh, uh, devastating conflicts. So, so that is one really important factor. Um, also, people are fleeing directly into a neighboring European country, so primarily Poland, um, but Hungary as well, um, and other countries in that area. Um, and then there's just the, the cultural, political, uh, 
historical ties between Ukraine, Europe, and countries like Canada, which has more than a million citizens that uh, uh, claim uh, Ukrainian heritage. And so uh, all of those factors are really important. But there is also an aspect of this which uh, people point to and say that it's related to race. And so, you know, while Hungary is welcoming with open arms the refugees from Ukraine, they actively push back refugees from other countries. We see the same thing in Italy, along the Mediterranean. Um, and even Canada has been accused of this, of sending refugees back to the United States or preventing refugees from coming to Canada or mistreating them once they get here. So, um, you know, and then just the basics of it. If the average refugee um, uh, spends between 10 and 26 years of their lives living as refugees, often in refugee camps in places like Kenya or other parts of Africa or the Middle East. And so the the speed with which the West has responded to this is it, it is significantly different than yeah, the response for sure. to say like a conflict in Sudan. Uh Brian, we gotta jump in. Brian Hill uh, with Global News. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from nine hundred CHML. If you haven't been paying attention the Hamilton Bulldogs always win. <laughs> and it's hardly an exaggeration. This year, uh, they are first place in the Ontario Hockey League by a large and growing margin. If you have not been keeping up, uh, your local team is doing well. And uh, last night's win tied their franchise record for most wins in a season, which means they've got eight games left, one more win. And they become the best Bulldogs team regular season. Anyway, still playoffs still to come, but the best Bulldogs team of all time. The guy who, I think we can say the guy who's responsible for this. You got to if you're gonna if you're gonna fire coaches when things don't go well, you sure as heck have to give the coaches credit when they go well. Jay McKee, head coach of the Hamilton Bulldogs, joins us. Jay, how are you tonight? Today, I'm this doing afternoon. Good. How, are you, Scott? how are things? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, by the way, you guys play Oshawa tomorrow night. Do you guys only play Oshawa these days? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the, the way the schedules went, uh, you know, there's clumps of games against teams. And, you know, I, that actually makes everyone's job a bit easier. Uh, you know, there's less, uh, there's actually a little bit less preparation because the players, you know, they like they like the video. They like to be prepared. They like to know what the other team is doing. But when you play them so often, uh, we can pull back on that and not, you know, have things become too monotonous and keep them fresh. So it, it makes it makes our jobs a little easier when we play a, a team in a short span of time a bunch of times. Jay, this is, I think everybody knows, most people will know, this is your first year in Hamilton as the coach of the Bulldogs. D- did you expect that you could come in and have this kind of success with this team? Or is this even beyond what you might have hoped? Um, you know what? We tried to ingrain it in the players early. My, my first conversation with all the returning players, uh, you know, I gave them a few principles and pillars of, of what we expected, um, you know, and, and, and I can recall the same thing I told every player was start envisioning, envisioning now doing something special this year, not just as an individual, but as a team. And that was my, you know, part of the opening thing that I said to each returning player. And the reason I, I wanted to give them that message, number one, I, I believe in, know manifesting and focusing and and um you know achieving things you really put your mind to so we wanted to get that in their heads early and and but the building blocks i i told the players the building blocks are in place to have 
know, success this season. I think Steve Steos has done a phenomenal job at, at bringing a number one, just really good, coachable, respectful, and mature kids. Uh, he, he put together a great leadership group. Uh, the culture is fantastic. And, I mean, he's, he's built a team that has depth and speed and size and toughness and it just kind of, uh, you know, he, he hit every box with the team. So uh, did I know that we were going to be, uh, you know, in this position at this time of year? No, but I, I knew that, um, you know, if everything went well and came together, uh, we could be a, a team that wins more than we lose for sure. You touch on the team, but you also mentioned the players individually. Uh, I wrote something in the paper a couple of weeks ago, and it still blows me away when I looked at this, that almost every single guy in you, on your roster is having a career year this year. Now, I understand that stats mm-hmm. are only part of the thing, but when you yeah. go down a team's lineup and every guy has set all-time best marks in points and everything else, that, that, there's something going on. There, there's something that's obviously working with this team that it can be so up and down the lineup. Yeah, I know. Like I said, it's a special group. And, and when you have uh, a good culture and, and when Steve and I met uh, for the first time, uh, you know, in an interview when he was doing his due diligence and meeting with a lot of different coaches, um, you know, he really stressed how he focuses on culture. And, and it's really opened my eyes, at, you know, seeing that the, the guys we have here as a coach, the, the coachability and the care factor, and it, it really does stem from, having really good kids that want to learn that have a, a you know an inner drive and desire um, obviously as coaches we have to inspire and teach and develop um, but it's 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 so much easier to do and and you can have success when when the kids want to learn and, and when the culture is there so I, I really attribute a lot of that to the players in the dressing room and and, and you know I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to have just a, a fantastic staff and Andreas Carlson and, and uh, Andrew Campbell, those two, uh, they just work tirelessly and they have a, a real good way of teaching with the players and doing their one-on-one meetings. And uh, yeah, I'm incredibly fortunate. I feel like I have two, uh, two head coaches alongside me. So it's, it's been a, uh, you know, just a, a great setup all around for, uh, for success. My math has never been a strong suit, but I think if you guys win three more games, you're guaranteed to finish at least tied for first. Does that mean, does that matter to you or, or this whole thing, does only the playoffs matter? Do you care if you finish first overall in the regular season? Uh, there's two parts to that. You know, we don't look at that. We don't talk about it. Uh, we go game by game. Really the focus is on the next game all the time. Um, but, but in saying that, when you look at a season and look at the value of finishing uh, potentially first overall, uh, there's a big advantage. You have home ice uh, throughout the playoffs, re- regardless of who you're playing, and, and there is an advantage to that. You have last change, so you can line match as a coaching staff on the front end and back end of the bench. Uh, players on every team in every league of hockey feel better at home. They get to sleep in their own beds. They get to have the meals they normally have. The preparation is the same. Um, and you get four to seven games at home, and, and every team plays better at home. Um, you know, So, of course, that is something we would like to achieve, but uh, we are a team that, that doesn't discuss that. We don't talk about it. We just go game by game and, and focus on that next game and that next shift. Well, you would also, if it happened, you would also get to uh, to maybe, if the OHL ever brings it out of storage, hold on to the Hamilton Spectator Trophy, which, you know, no Hamilton team has ever done that. That would, you know, 
something. Oh, dust it off. That's the plan. Let's dust it off and uh, and get it out. That would be great. <laughs> uh, that is Jay McKee. Next game is tomorrow evening. You play again, Oshawa. Um, if you went to the outdoor game, that's who they're playing again. It's uh, uh, tomorrow night and uh, trying to set the all-time mark. Well, I mean, the, the history is not that long yet in the OHL, but still the all-time mark for wins in a season by the Bulldogs. Jay, thanks for the time today. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. Good talking. The number of permits for people to do renovations around their home right across the province took off last year, but here in Hamilton, way up, way up, over 20, 26.5% increase year over year for building permits, not necessarily just for to, to do a new house, renovation permits within a home. Uh as I say, way, way, way up. And the big driver behind this, the the one thing that was more than any other in this city, and I think this is a bit of a shocker, everybody now wants a pool, it seems. Pools were driving this thing. I want to bring in Bob Asadurian from Triple R Incorporated and host of Just Ask Bob on Cable 14. Bob, how are you today? Very good, very good. Hello, Scott, and hello, Hamilton. I can't say that I am in any way shocked that there has been a surge in demand in renovations around here. Uh, Everyone's been home with COVID. They've looked around their house. They've seen what they like, what they don't like. It's too expensive to move. Uh, Am I missing something? That that seems like it was a really logical and obvious thing that was probably going to happen. Yes, correct, correct. The combination, COVID-19, low interest rates. I mean, I know they're on the rise now. People being bored, people honestly working from home day in and day out, looking at their surroundings, that that creates a need for change. I mean, we're look. you may hear banging in the background. We're in the process of having our ensuite bathroom done right now uh, for the oh, exact wow. same reason as everyone else. But I'll tell you something, one of the real challenges because of all this, finding a contractor. It is really tough right now because those guys and, and women who are doing that job, my goodness, are they in demand. Well, Scott, you actually hit the nail on the head. And what I find interesting is, and I hope this is a true and good indicator, with the fact of building permits being at an all-time high, that should be an indicator, clear indicator, that these jobs are being done by licensed Hamilton contractors, legitimate jobs. The uh, crooked, illegitimate, unlicensed contractors, they may keep busy in their own way, but they certainly wouldn't be applying for a City of Hamilton building permit, and the city certainly wouldn't be issuing them one. So with the permits applications or permit approvals on the rise, that definitely shows that more of the jobs are being done legitimately, which is important because the trades, the contractors, they are hard hard to find. This is my 19th year in business. And when COVID hit, I mean, I I didn't know what was going to happen. I was worried just just as the next guy. It turns out the last two and a half plus years have been the busiest, busiest that I've experienced in 19 years. It's just unbelievable. And, and you know what, one of the amazing things about this is what we're talking about is those projects that required a permit. Not every single home renovation project requires a permit. So it's just crazy right now, the amount of work that's being done. Correct. Do you think, do you think this is the new normal? Do you think that we are now at a point where a lot of people, even once COVID is gone, are going to say, you know what, I'm looking around the market and it just costs so much to try and move. And I, I just, I don't even want the bother of taking on new debt or whatever else. I'm happy where I am. I'm going to fix it up, but I'm going to stay here. Is that what's going to happen now? Well, I must admit, Scott, as a business owner, I hope that's the case. I honestly (laughs) hope that's the case. And so would other business owners. But I really, really think it's tied to, I mean, even the war in Ukraine, that may affect things, interest rates, Bank of Canada. 
you know, it's very difficult, you know, maybe wishful thinking for us business owners to hope that this is the new norm. And if that's an indicator, you know, great business for the young folks or young people to get into is the trades. But I mean, we, we can only hope uh, again, interest rates, uh, unfortunately will play a factor, at least from my perspective, from my experience, I'm finding that unfortunately, the majority of my clients seem to be taking on lines of credit. Now, it would be nice, you know, from a financial perspective, people are spending money that they actually have, but a lot of indicators are showing that people are borrowing, and we all know what Mm. happens when the rates go up. Yeah, yeah, and thank you for mentioning, by the way, because I think you're bang on. I mean, you know what? You want to have a good living these days. You can go to law school, you can go to medical school, or you can go into the trades and not even go to university, and I'm not knocking university, but... I think we have in this country almost made it that if you don't go to university, somehow you failed or you're missing out. And boy, the people who are working in this business right now, they're doing just fine. I know two people right at this moment in university and starting out home renovations, contracting businesses, because there's just no, no acceptance in the field that they're, that they're trying to get into through the courses and studies they're taking in the university. You know, many, many years ago, there used to be a stigma. Uh, as a matter of fact, I mean, this was back in 2009, but a home improvement book that I co-authored, a contractor you can bring home to mom, you know, it was about challenging the stigma. You know, a daughter dating somebody, parents finding out he's a contractor, he works with his hands, a little bit of a stigma there. That's not the case anymore. The average bricklayer, average framer in Ontario is surpassing 55, 56 years of age. Well, Canada, Ontario, Hamilton needs young people to take on the trade. And they Absolutely. can do it. There's a market. Well, there's a market and we have, we have another situation here in the city that I just found fascinating because as long as I can remember, I've heard it's, it's, it's an, I don't even know if it's an urban legend. I think it's a truism that, you know what, a pool is a liability. You may want to have a pool in your background. You may enjoy having a pool, but when it comes time to sell your house, nobody wants to buy a house with a pool. Boy, that seems to have completely flipped on its head right now. Well, it has, it has. And then literally, I mean, I'll throw the coin phrase here, backyard oasis. Uh, Last season on Cable 14, we did an entire one-hour program titled Backyard Oasis, where we showed the complete build from beginning to end of a backyard makeover. And the point was, and especially at that time, you know, flights weren't flying anywhere warm. So people weren't able to travel due to COVID. So the big, big push was create your own backyard oasis. The one we featured didn't include a pool, unfortunately, but there's so many ways to do it. You know, for whatever reason, whether it's the lineups, the temperature checks or the worries, what happens if you test positive for COVID in another country? I think that's the number one reason why it appears from the, what the media is telling us that these increases in permits seems to be directly tied to decks and pools and they go hand in hand. But you can still have an absolutely beautiful backyard oasis with or without a pool. It really depends yeah, on the I- budget and talk to your realtor again, as well, I would assume. And it'll be interesting to see if in a year or two or three, if we return to our normal or if we've now become comfortable and, and really liking the idea of staying in our backyards and having that. I, I tend to think it might be the latter, at least for a while. We'll we'll find out though. Things go, things wax and wane. Bob Asadurian from Triple R Incorporated, host of Just Ask Bob. You can see him on Cable 14. Bob, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you. I had a terrific time with you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. April the 7th, we will learn what the state of our federal finances, at least where they're going to be going, is. A lot of people wondering how this is going to look 
for a lot of reasons. I want to bring in Ian Lee. He's an associate professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, thanks for doing this again today. Appreciate the time. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. So we know, we know, we've known for a while, we know the budget is going to be a deficit budget. There's been no hiding that. But that yes. was even before last week's NDP liberal alignment that's going to now bring us pharmacare, or at least the introduction in national care, dental care and fossil fuel reduction we've heard about in the last day or so. And there's some other big ticket things on there. And that's before we're going to spend more apparently on defense and before we factored in interest rates rising, which will affect our interest payments, how in the world does Christian Freeland possibly balance all this or take all this into account and not have this as a budget that is just insanely huge? Uh, Scott, I think you've just very nicely and absolutely correctly defined the central, the most important dilemma facing Finance Minister Freeland. No doubt about it. Now I'm going to throw out some uh, big picture suggestions. I don't think it's quite as daunting, subject to some of the things I'm going to say she could do. Okay. And if she doesn't do what I'm going to say, then it's going to be absolutely daunting because we're dealing with arithmetic. Sorry for those who don't like their math from their high school or public school days, but this is basic <laughs> arithmetic, not calculus, not algebra. Arithmetic is addition and subtraction, you know, pluses and minuses. So here's what I'm going to suggest. Yes, defense spending is going to be going up unless we want to, you know, uh, just uh, show our absolute disdain uh, for the horrors that are going on in Ukraine. All the other countries in the coalition in the West are increasing their spending. So I think that's a foregone conclusion that we're going to raise it to 2% of GDP like the other countries. We've, after all, promised to do so for literally 50 years. And for 50 years, Canada has violated its commitment to NATO made by successive prime ministers. So I think that's going to happen. I agree. On the um, uh, pharmacare front, I'm, I'm still hoping against hope that they're going to not go universal pharmacare. Universal is code word, which they will not tell you uh, or any Canadian, uh, but universal means giving free drugs to everybody, including professors like me that don't need it. And it means giving free drugs to doctors making a million dollars a year that don't need it. I am hopeful that they don't lose their perspective and say, let's give free drugs to high income, upper middle income people, people that don't need help. We have 10 provincial pharmacares in Canada. 42% of all prescription drugs are paid to low income people. For sure, they may want to enhance the support of, of pharma care for low income people. Let's say the people in the bottom 40% of the population ranked by income. Uh, that would be fine. I just hope that they don't go uh, to full uh, universal pharmacare because it's A, frightfully expensive, and B, there's no justification to give high-income people free drugs. So that's how one way they could modify the, the stress or the demand on the, on the budget is by saying, we're not going to do full pharmacare. We'll do uh, a targeted to those who need help. Likewise, dental care. If they just target it to low-income people and people that need help, then that will mitigate the cost very significantly. Now, one thing I said that they could do, and I, it's very credible what I'm about to say, uh, Scott, and it's very important. We have spent, we Canada and the provinces, but especially the Canadian government, the government of Canada, has spent hundreds of billions of dollars over the past two years on income support for COVID. Now, when you look, when one looks at the numbers, Stats Canada data, the pandemic is over. 
This is not to trivialize those who've got sick and become very sick, not to trivialize it at all. It's simply that when you look at the data, hard data, the Canadian data, we have recovered every last job that was uh, lost due to COVID, and we've created a whole bunch more jobs um, since then. In other words, our economy is stronger now than it was before COVID. And secondly, there's almost a million jobs going unfilled. So what I am suggesting is that they have to end uh, the COVID income support programs, re reverting back to our standard long time income support program called, oh my goodness, the unemployment insurance program, which has been around for 75, 80 years. And it works with strong support for Canadians. So for people who say, what am, how can you say ending COVID support? What are we gonna do for people that need help? The answer is the programs we've always used so successfully for so long. Final quick point, remember inflation. It is causing money to flow in to the federal and provincial treasuries. They're getting a windfall gain from inflation. And so they have a lot more money than they did before. And they could mitigate what they're paying out, promising to pay out on pharmacare, Danacare. And they can end the most or all of the money spent on COVID support because the pandemic is over from an economic perspective. GDP is growing much faster than it was pre-COVID. And we've regained every last job that we lost before COVID, during the COVID. So yeah. my point is, is they can judicially, surgically <clears throat> reconfigure the spending in such a way that they don't create a monstrous, gargantuan, unsustainable deficit. I th thank you. I mean, that's, listen, that's a great explanation. And, and I want to just, we got to run, but I, I, I want to just mention something that you just said, the, the fact about inflation. This is always so disconcerting to me because people are hurting because of inflation. Okay. And yet okay. the government really benefits because now if we pay more for something, the amount yes. of taxes we have to pay on that go up. So inflation is actually really good for a government that is That's way right. in deficit, which shows to me that they have no incentive to try and slow down inflation. Why would they? And now maybe exactly. they look at the people and say, we got to help out. But boy, that does not seem like it's a, a motivating factor for a government to bring that down. Exactly. So you're, you're absolutely right. But my point is, it's not, you're right, but it's not quite as dire depending on what they do. If they don't blow the budget on going universal pharmacare, dental care, dental plan, we're giving it, in other words, to high income people that don't need it, then that will really reduce the cost. There's and then chance. if they pivot, then they'll, I think that they can, she can pull it off. Ian Lee, Associate Professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. See, everyone listening just got a free lecture as if you were in school and had paid a tuition. You now know no exactly exam. what to and look no for. And no exam. Even better, and no exam. Uh, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. General Jonathan Vance, uh, probably a name that you might never have heard or rarely heard, but has found his way into the news for a lot of the wrong reasons lately. Uh, anyway, he's the former chief of Canada's defense staff. He pleaded guilty today, uh, this morning, to one count of obstruction of justice laid against him following an investigation into allegations of inappropriate behavior that was first reported by Global News last year. I want to bring in Christian Luprecht. He's a professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, and he is a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute to chat about this. Uh, thank you for doing this. Oh, 
We're just getting him just little technical, technical stuff that happens occasionally. But yes, we've got the, so the guy who was in charge of our military for all intents and purposes, uh, in, in charge of the defense staff, um, remarkable plea of guilty today, standing virtually in an Ottawa courtroom, not there in person, but had to plead guilty and talk about a, um, well, I don't know if it's a fall from grace. I mean, a fall from grace in terms of having to admit your guilt and being, I'm sure, humiliated and dealing with the, the fallout of being the person who is in charge of the military during what's been a number of cases of sexual misconduct against senior leaders. Not really sure what exactly happens to General Vance at this point. I mean, he the 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 plea will be the plea. He got a conditional discharge, so no criminal record. And now we got Christian Luprak. I want to bring in Christian Luprak uh, to talk about this. Christian, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate it. Good afternoon. My pleasure. So, uh, for him to get a conditional discharge today and no criminal record, is that an appropriate penalty under the circumstances? Well, I think this is what people had hypothesized was likely going to be the resolution of this particular case. And I think it points to the distinction between um, a criminal offense and uh, conduct that is ethically or morally unacceptable or even reprehensible conduct that may run afoul of uh, the, um, uh, the rules of conduct within the Canadian Armed Forces uh, but conduct that does not, or only in a very limited uh, extent, meet uh, the threshold of wrongdoing under civil or criminal procedure. And I think that the public has had a hard time, I think, distinguishing among those. Um, and I think it's, it manifests the fact that the public has a higher expectations of civil servants than it does of uh, their regular citizens, and a particularly high expectation of members who serve in uniform, and especially when those members are in senior leadership positions. So I, I think, think that's true. What, what much of the public discourse did is project that particular very high expectations that they have of the women, men, and diverse members that serve in uniform, whether that's in the military or the police, onto the overall conduct of that individual. I think what the chart shows is, yes, there was wrongdoing, but the wrongdoing met a relatively low threshold of wrongdoing in the overall catalog of federal offenses to which any uh, citizen is equally subject. It is. Uh, it's an interesting story for sure, and it's. Uh, it is a very high-profile story. Well, I'm sure there will be follow-up on this for for him. Um, I do want to switch tack though, because just because we have limited time with you, and there's another very big story about the Canadian Armed Forces in the last day or so, and that is our government's announcement that it's going to begin negotiations to buy F-35 jets to replace our aging fleet of CF-18s, and it's interesting because. Six years ago, seven years ago, this government vowed that it would never buy F-35s. What has changed? And, and, and Well, let's start with that. What has changed? Well, perhaps, hopefully, some recognition that opposition parties on both sides of the aisle playing political football with defense procurement is really bad for Canadian interests and for Canadian grand strategy. 
that the military is ultimately an instrument of Canadian foreign policy, perhaps arguably the single most important instrument of foreign policy, and politicizing procurement doesn't serve anyone's interest, in particular not the Canadian national interest. And of course, now we are living in a very changed security environment where Canada is being chastised and admonished by everyone from the Secretary General um, of NATO uh, and, and as, as well as the Biden administration downwards. Because our cupboards, we live in, we have a, an international security crisis. Our allies are asking us to do more, and we have nothing more to give. We don't even have a fighter jet that could defeat Russian air defenses. And so I think this, is a, this announcement is as much a recognition of the fact that um, the, it, it is imperative to re-equip the Canadian Armed Forces that have been deprived by governments of all political colors federally for the last 20 years um, and the dire state that the armed forces are in, as it is a recognition that the security environment has changed and that Canada must do more and must do more as soon as possible. I am dismayed by the fact that these negotiations, this dialogue, as the government calls, is going to take seven months. I'm not familiar with any procurement project in sure. Canadian history where it took more than three or four months. What is the current, and I mean, look, we, we could talk about this for the next two hours. We only have about 90 seconds, but what is the current capability of our military? I mean, there's been lots of questions about that, and I don't want to be glib. I don't want to be sarcastic or anything, but could we, if the need arose, could we defend ourselves today? It is the first and foremost obligation, in my view, of any state to be able to defend that country and in the Canadian case to defend the continent as a member of NORAD and to be able to defend our allies as a member of NATO. And I would say in Canada today, we do not have the capability to respond adequately to any three of those um, requirements operationally. That's because the Canadian Force for the last 20 years, governments have focused unduly on the operational side and have forgotten that you also need to reconstitute the armed forces and you need to maintain and sustain them. And so if you only focus on operations, then you're going to break the organization. And what we have today is an organization that is struggling on recruitment and retention and it is struggling on maintenance and sustainment. And so the government will have to make a number of changes and it goes far beyond a reinvestment in the armed forces to ensure that this organization can actually perform for Canadian taxpayers, for the government of the day, and for Canadian interests. You know, and Christian, thank you for that. I mean, look, I think that Canadians, I truly believe Canadians generally are very proud of our soldiers and those who wear the uniform. I don't know that Canadians are as proud of the situation they find themselves in uh, you know, you talk about the army and, you know, people say, what, do they, do they get pop guns? I mean, like, it, it, it's become almost a joke, which is terribly unfortunate because the people who are wearing the uniform are outstanding. It's, we don't live in an age of mass recruitment anymore. We live in an age of very targeted, highly specialized trades and occupations that in many cases take uh, five to seven years to train people up. So when a crisis comes, you can't then simply turn as a government to the military and say, uh, go. Uh, because mm -hmm. you can buy all the fighter jets you want. Now we also need to make sure we actually train up the pilots, and we're short almost 250 pilots as is. So this is a much broader con conversation about reconstituting the Canadian Absolutely. armed forces that requires government attention, sustained government attention. Christian Luprecht, always love having you on the show. Thank you for the time today. Sincere pleasure. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. If you follow the news, we're hearing some terrible things about what's happening in Ukraine, and that's hardly news to you. I mean, you've been aware of this. Uh, Maternity wards have been hit with bombs or missiles. Lung-bursting bombs have reportedly been used. We're hearing threats of chemical or even nuclear weapons. I mean, it's, it's ugly what is happening. And now people are saying, well, okay, when this ends, whenever that happens, what what becomes of Vladimir Putin and his brass? Because it appears to the average person, it would sound like war crimes or crimes against humanity may have been committed. Well, the RCMP has apparently sent more officers to the International Criminal Court to help investigate these things. I want to bring in Dr. Geneviève Bates, who's an assistant professor of political science at the University of British Columbia who specializes in transitional justice and human rights and international law. Thank you for the time today. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm really excited to be with you. Um, uh, am I, I mean, look, I, I'm not the expert here. I'm, I'm, I'm the average person who is watching these stories and watching the news. Am I jumping too far ahead too quickly to say it sounds mm-hmm. like with some of these things that have happened that they would fall under the category of war crimes? Or does the definition of that is it something else that I'm, I'm, I shouldn't go that far yet? Uh, okay, so I am uh, not a lawyer. I am certainly not sort of a judge in an international court, but I think that you're right on target with saying that those things are war crimes. I look at them and I see them as war crimes. I mean, this is what I study and like everything from the shelling of civilians to the bombing of maternity clinics to if if the... Um, if chemical weapons are being used, uh, and there's at least some anecdotal evidence to suggest that that might be the case, like all of these things are war crimes. Yeah. So what what happens then going forward? The RCMP apparently is sending officers to help investigate this. Um, they can investigate all they want. I, I don't want to be cynical here, but like it doesn't seem like there's a realistic possibility that we're ever going to get Putin in a court. So what does this end up meaning? So uh, the cynicism is warranted. I uh, I um, certainly look at all of this with a little bit of a skeptical eye because the, the most important sort of step is the first part of this that you mentioned, which is there has to be an after for us to be worried about. Right, right. Um, and... Uh, Certainly an after with Putin still in power. Um, I don't see a world where anything happens to him, even in the slightest. Um, Though, depending on what that after looked like, that doesn't sort of um, make any and all members of the Russian armed forces exempt. But uh, an after with Putin not in power, uh, that really depends on the dynamics of of what that looks like and and where Putin is. Putin is and what's happening to him um, in a version of the world where Vladimir Putin is no longer in power. Uh, All of that being said, (laughs) you have questions for me. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Keep going. I was just going to say, all of that being said, there are, um, as you said, the the Canadian government has sent um, additional RCMP investigators to uh, to The Hague to assist with the International Criminal Court's investigation into the uh, commission of atrocities in Ukraine by all forces, not just Russian ones, but uh, obviously for, for sort of clear reasons, we're focused primarily on, on 
what Russian forces are doing in Ukraine. Um, and we will see where that investigation goes and what the International Criminal Court finds, because that can uh, matter a lot for what, assuming there is a, a, a war, there's a time after Putin, uh, what that looks like for Russia. Would there be, okay, so even if they couldn't get him, presumably they could hold a trial in absentia where he's not there and he could be tried. Is there any symbolic value in that? Even even if they couldn't get their hands on him, if he was found guilty, does that does that mean anything even symbolically? Well, so I think that there are lots of, you know, there are lots of reasons to be hesitant about wanting to hold a trial in absentia for anybody. Um, but I think that, I think that, sure, it certainly could hold symbolic value um, for the victims of these abuses. Um, it certainly sends a strong message from the rest of the international community were such a thing to occur, uh, depending on the venue and the context. Uh, it certainly sends a strong message, you know, uh, further condemning these kinds of actions. And that along with many of the other international responses to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, you know, just further adds to the making this, drawing a clear line in the sand and saying, this is no longer, this is like not the world we want to live in and we don't think it's acceptable. Mm. I do wonder, and I have wondered for a while now, if, if the people who surround him at any point might say, you know, thank you, that's enough and do something to, either harm him or turn him over to someone. I, I, I can't really imagine that, but there is a point at which you wonder if they look at the, the sanctions and you look at the way their country is struggling and you look at the thousands apparently of dead soldiers coming home and you just wonder if someone there might just say, that's enough. Thank you. I mean, most of, so as, as you mentioned, I'm a political scientist and um, many of Many political scientists who study uh, especially the end of certain kinds of of regimes, this is one of the things that they point to. What you're talking about is what we call in political science an elite split and a split amongst the people who are supporting uh, and holding up Putin's regime in Russia. Um, and what we have found is that much more so than... Um, sort of protests from the masses, from the average citizens, uh, most regimes end because of splits within the elite. And that can happen for any number of reasons. Either there are fewer resources to go around amongst them, um, or sort of any other kinds of constraints are placed on these elites that makes uh, existing under, like in the current system no longer beneficial to them. And that, and you could see those kinds of splits. I um, hesitate to say whether I think that that's where things are headed. I think it's really early to tell. Um, but that is definitely, uh, you know, a big, a big thing to be looking out for. Yeah, and and I mean, look, I've I've read enough stories, and it's fascinating. You know, back in World War II, with what the the Israeli Secret Service, the Mossad, did to go and hunt down war criminals, and the story of how they found and tried Adolf Eichmann and all that, and you think, uh, you know, I wonder if it, it seems like it's a different world now. You couldn't do those kinds of things again. There, if, if never, if people have not read those stories, go read them. It is amazing how they found some of these 
Nazi leaders and brought them to justice. But I, it seems like, as I say, it's 2022 is a whole lot different from, you know, the late 1940s. I'm, I'm not sure that the same thing could happen again. But then again, Saddam Hussein was found in a hole. So, you know, <laughs> who knows what might happen down the road? Maybe we'll find Vladimir Putin hiding in a bunker in Siberia somewhere or someday down the road. Uh, Dr. Geneviève Bates, Assistant Professor at the University of British Columbia. Really appreciate the time. Thank you for doing this today. Thank you so much for having me again. His name is Rick Vive. He joins me now. Rick, how are you today? I'm very good. Very good. This is um, this is a, a, a nice time for you, I would think. As somebody, as I say, who sort of blazed the trail, became the first Leaf to score 50 goals in a season, Austin Matthews has a chance to do that tomorrow. Is this something that you find exciting? Is this something that you get excited about watching someone else do? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, when you think about it, there's only been three guys in the organization's history that has done it. And uh, nobody in the past 28, 29 years. So, yeah, I I would – it's definitely exciting. And the fact that he's got a real – real real good shot at at uh, creating a new record uh over the 54 uh I, you know i think that's great it's great for the organization it's great for the city uh and obviously great for him as well so you're not one of those guys who says you know what this is a really nice small elite group of 50 goal scorers let's keep it that way you're a more the merrier guy well i mean it's it's just I mean, it's been 40 years since I did it for the first time in franchise history. And, you know, I mean, there's always a time where it's time to pass on the torch, so to speak. And uh, uh, as a, as, as a record holder and, uh, you know, he, he's an incredible player and and a great goal scorer. And I, you know, it's why not him? I mean, uh, I, I think it's, it's fitting that a guy of his caliber is a guy that does it. You've got to be of a good caliber to do it. By, by complete coincidence, Rick, um, the night that you got your 50th, um, you're playing against the St. Louis Blues. That was the one night that year that my dad and I went to a game that was our annual game. And so I got to be there. Uh, you were there too, as I recall. <laughs> but uh, what do you remember about that night? Because that was that was the first. That was so special when you did that. What do you remember about that night? Um, you know what? I don't. I mean, I don't remember that much about it other than the fact that I think I was a little nervous going into the game thinking, you know, I got to get it tonight and get it over with uh, at 49. And I thought, you know, tonight I need to do it and, and finish it. And, uh, you know, sure enough, we were on the power play. Billy Gerlago got the puck, made a, a couple of real uh, great moves and came across. He he knows where I'm going to be. And I Billy and I kind of played that way. And wherever I was, he knew, and he made a beautiful backhand pass uh, through the scene that allowed me to put it in, and uh, it was wonderful. And uh, had family in town and everything else, and and uh, we had a good time celebrating it, and it's something I'll never forget. Uh, you mentioned Builder Lego, a pretty good passer for sure. Dave Anderchuk uh, played with Doug Gilmore, pretty good passer. Uh, Gary Lehman. Ed Olchek was a center, pretty good passer. Now we're seeing Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, same story. It's not a fluke, I'm guessing, that all the guys who have reached this have had somebody who also helps them, who, who helps set them up and gives them that opportunity. Oh, there's no question. I mean, you don't do it alone. There's no, I, I don't know of anybody that does it alone uh, other than maybe Wayne, uh, but <laughs> 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 you know, that's Gretzky, I mean. 
but, you know, you have to have good line mates and you have to have good power play. Uh, and, and I was fortunate enough that uh, during those three years that I did it, I had Builder Lego for half of that time and Danny Daou for the other half. And yeah, yeah. Both of them were, were good centermen. They got the puck to me. Uh, and and Billy was a pretty good goal scorer, too, because I remember he got hurt one year. And when he came back, they didn't put him on my line. They put him on left wing. And he scored 40 goals that year on left wing. And he was a natural centerman. So Billy was a heck of a player overall. There is always, uh, and you know this, uh, you may have participated in these kinds of discussions, but there's always a debate between eras, uh, right? And when, you know, could so-and-so do something today or was so-and-so someone better then? Every era is different. You played with wood sticks. You had more clutching and grabbing. There was, you know, goalies were smaller, but there were other things. Austin Matthews, better equipment now, faster game, uh, but better goalies. Do you ever look and you go, could I have done this now or could he have done it then? Do you ever compare the eras? Well, I mean, not really delve into it deeply, but I do believe that anybody who can do that and, you know, multiple times, I think could do it in any era. Uh, like I always said, you could take Rocket Richard, put him in today's game or put him into the game in the 80s and he would find a way to do it. And I just believe that if you're a guy that scores that many goals, you're able to, you're going to be able to do it in any era. 50 is special though. And I mean, assuming that Austin gets there, uh, it's something that he's always going to have. And, and I, I was wondering if, if you've ever thought if you had got to 48 or 49 and just not been able to get over the hump, do you think how people would have thought of you would have been different? Do you think 50 has that kind of magic that just that number attaches something to the player that is extra special? Yeah, absolutely. I, I still think, you know, 50 goals in, in any professional league is still kind of the benchmark uh, that if you achieve that, that's something special. And I, I truly believe that that definitely now would I have been looked at any differently if I ended up with 49 those three years? Uh, who knows? Probably. Uh, but the fact that you get 53 years in a row, I think that puts you in a different kind of column, I guess, mm. so to speak. Absolutely. And before we let you go, I mean, you mentioned the three years in a row, and, and I don't think anyone's forgotten that. But for you as a, as a competitor, as someone who who you want to prove every night that you're one of the best players in the world, doing it more than once. Was that important to you? I mean, obviously you want to score goals, you want to win, but to show that, you know, it wasn't a one-off. I could do this again and again. Did that matter to you? Uh, well, it's not really something I thought about, to be quite honest with you. I now? Just, uh, no, I, I never thought about it then. I don't think about it now. I think uh, it was just something that uh, that happened. It evolved. Uh, it was the type of player I was, and I guess that kind of shows that uh, the fact that uh, – I did it three years in a row and uh, I don't know how many, I think seven or eight 30 plus seasons in a row. And, you know, so I, I, you know, when you put it all together like that, then you start thinking that, you know what, that was pretty special. It was a lot of fun and, uh, and getting to do that was, was something that I'll never, you know, take lightly or forget. Hey, it opened the door to play on the Dundas real McCoys. What more could you want? (laughs) Yeah, that's uh 
Uh, I don't know if that was quite the thing that I should have done. I was, uh, I think I was 40 at the time. I mean, yes, I was in good shape, but once I got out there and started playing against guys in their 20s, it, it made it a whole lot different <laughs> for me. <laughs> Rick Vive, uh, we'll be watching tomorrow. We'll be thinking of you tomorrow if Austin Matthews gets. Appreciate the time today. All right. Take care. We may, all of us listening, had different points of view, different thoughts on the trucker protest. You may have opposed it and everything it stood for and the way they did it. You might have supported it. That's not the issue, although that's where we're starting right now. Because there are concerns being expressed now that we've had a little bit of time to think about what happened, not just here in Canada, but outside as well, about at least one facet of the government's response that has people a little concerned, maybe more than a little concerned. The the idea that a government can now essentially eliminate you from society by cutting off your access to finances or other digital services without a trial has made a lot of people think that's what happened. People's finances, they you were a supporter, you could get your bank accounts locked and everything else. A lot of people now saying, is this really a power we want any government, doesn't matter what political stripe, any government to hold? Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and journalist, joins me now. Thank you for doing this today. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. Let me read you a line from Tablet Magazine, which wrote about this. Uh, Here's a sentence. This is an entirely new form of power, which much of the world has not even begun to reckon with. But with which we may, but which may well define our politics in the years to come. Do you agree with that idea that this is now something people are going to have to be thinking about? Well, I think the fact that we witnessed it in the wake of the Freedom Convoy uh, protests, I think, uh, illustrates that uh, it isn't something in the future. It's something that's here already uh, that the government has shown. And again, you're absolutely right. It has nothing to do with what side of the political stripe you're on. It's the fact that any government of any background can use fi- digital financial tools to essentially uh, wipe us off the, the financial map for as long as they want uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and w- with the stroke of a pen or the stroke of a keyboard, I was astounded at how quickly this technology was able to be ruled out um, and how quickly those affected by it were essentially cut off from making any financial transaction for the duration of the event. Right. And when you say it's not about politics, I agree with you. Because look, those even some of those who supported the idea now may have felt outraged or shocked if this had been under Stephen Harper's government or, you know, whatever. It, it's any government that if you put this power and say, feel free, this is something you can use. I think people are going to be concerned. And, and because up until now, money has provided some form of autonomy. It's, it's outside the system. Digital currency is now a different world that can be handled in a way that you couldn't handle paper money before for the against the people. Exactly. You know, there's a reason why, since the beginning of time, uh, some people who are uh, notoriously uh, suspicious of government intentions and of financial institutions' intentions have kept their money in a mattress or in a pillowcase, <laughs> and they've held on to it because they wanted to stay off the radar. They didn't want their transactions tracked. They didn't want to sort of be visible to others. Um, and so that and that was back in the what we like to call the analog days of finance, when everything was paper based. When uh, you know, you, if you wanted to shut someone's accounts down, you had to go through a whole lot of steps to do it, and that could 
could take days, weeks, or even months. Not very easy for the average government or bank or institution to do. Uh, whereas now, where you know, we live in a digital age of finance, where everything is electronic, everything is online. Banks and institutions are increasingly interconnected. They're on common networks. You know, we heard a lot about the SWIFT network, for example, when Russia went into yes. Ukraine, that they were being cut off of it. And so, you know, those networks uh, essentially make finance happen at the speed of light. And uh, if if uh, CSIS or the FBI or whoever wants to learn about my financial background, uh, it takes a few strokes of a key today to do that. And if they want to essentially turn me off, cut me off from those uh, resources, they can do that too. And so that's what's frightening here is that because things move so quickly and because you don't need the resources to turn our access off and on like you did years or decades ago, uh, that's a huge amount of power now co concentrated in the hands of government, not just any government, but, you know, you know, essentially anyone who's been elected, whether we support them or not. And that gives me pause to the same degree that I would ask questions about, for example, our national spy agencies and the tools that they use to keep us safe. Those tools can also be used against us if we're not careful. And we ignore that potential, not saying that they will every time, but we ignore that potential at our peril. Well, and look, I, I thought about this a lot this afternoon before coming on the air, and I don't want to be hyperbolic. I don't want to be hysterical about this. I, I thought this through. Parts of China have a social credit system where mm. if you misbehave, you lose privileges. And this is not that, but at the same time, this is now into the area code of that. It's impossible not to see the two as being even distantly connected, but th there are comparisons. Absolutely. And I look at things through a technological lens. And certainly a lot of the baseline technologies that we're seeing used in the, in the financial system here are very much similar to the tools that are being used in China to track financial transactions and use them to create that social credit score that determines whether somebody gets the job or somebody gets on a plane or has access to certain resources if their score is high enough. And so no one is saying that the government of Canada is about to become just like the government of China, no, but no. Uh, th those technologies are at least somewhat related. And again, we have to be asking the question, what protections are being put in place to ensure that they can't be abused against citizens here in Canada? It, and see, this is the thing, Carmi, is that when the first time you do something, it's shocking. But then once you've done it, you sort of crack the door open. And I, I, I absolutely believe, I don't know for what, the Emergency Act will be invoked again. It took, what, mm -hmm. 30, 40 years, 30 years, whatever it was. It took a, a long time to come the first time. It'll be quicker the next time and then next time. And I was, I was shocked, honestly, more than anything else, I was shocked at how many Canadians seem to support the idea of this kind of financial lockdown apparently without thinking yeah but what if it's a government in power that i don't agree with next time that's the that's part right. to me that that no one or a lot of people don't seem to be thinking through i'm fine with it when it's a party mm -hmm. i support what if it's a party i don't support exactly or and what even frightens me more is what if it isn't coming from the government because these technologies these tools these platforms don't sit in the domain of governments in many cases they sit in the domain of 
financial corporations, Canada's big banks, insurance companies, uh, payment processors, companies who we have never elected and never will because they're, they're, they're in business. Uh, they have the potential to use this, this technology as well against us and what protections are in place to ensure that that doesn't happen. So we opened up a bit of a Pandora's box by using those financial instruments during the protests. Uh, but now it's kind of frightening because we realize that they could be used under any circumstance. And uh, I don't think I, you know, I don't think I really want to be around when that happens. Quite frankly, I think it's time that we have a national conversation about it. Certainly, Ab absolutely. Well, in advance absolutely. of the next election, something to talk about. Uh, now you're 100 percent right. Absolutely, time to like. Okay, we've done this. We've seen how this looks. I think that any clear-thinking person says that is a step too far, I think. What do we do about this? Uh, Carmi Levy, really appreciate the time, as always. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, you're going to be jumping for something. Don't know what it's going to be, but the operating budget for the city has been approved 2.8%, which will be, that's what you're going to pay on your taxes. Is that something that you are thrilled with or something you're not thrilled with? Well, you know what? You're going to figure that one out in the next little while. I want to bring in Brad Clark, Ward 9 Councillor, who was around the council table doing all these budget discussions and I know, Brad, the budget discussions are the highlight of any councillor's year, I know. You're so probably sad all this fun is over now. Oh, the budget can be exhausting, but it's it's necessary. I mean, we have to go through the numbers. We have to make sure that, that we're providing the services that are needed across the city. And at the same time, we have to balance that against tax increases where, you know, folks are challenged to pay these increases. So um, it's never easy. Is to are you when you leave that table? Are you happy with two point eight percent? Do you think that that's a, an acceptable number that you've reached? I would have liked to have got it down to two, but that would have meant uh, closures of rec centers or some other service that we would find ourselves in a situation of cutting. Uh, so we did it at two point eight percent, which is about one hundred and twenty dollars on the average tax increase um, for an average assessed value of three hundred eighty-two thousand. Bear in mind, the, these assessments are from 2016, and homes have not been assessed since by the provincial government. So um, you, even though we may be sitting in a million-dollar home right now, uh, you're not going to see your taxes go up because of that. Yeah, this is... Um... This is a difficult thing. When you get into the operating budget, this is a difficult thing for councillors to deal with uh, because so much of this is based on salaries and benefits and other pay to employees that it's built in. It's, it's baked into the thing. You can't, unless you're going to start cutting a whole bunch of people, that is, those are raises that you have to factor in. You can't do much about it. That, that's exactly the point. So the collective agreements are all in place. Um, we have to abide by the collective agreements as we move forward. And so we have staff that we need to pay. Um, and I know the prices are going up everywhere and we're quite concerned about inflation. Uh, next year is going to be really challenging if inflation continues to rise. Um, so we have to find the balances and sometimes it does mean 
uh, cutting services, uh, but this year it did not. Well, and, and I mean, again, the challenge in the last 10 years, just the cost for staff pay has gone up by a quarter billion dollars. I mean, $250 million more you're paying per year now than you were 10 years ago. That uh, Look, I, that, that's, that's a giant nut to try and deal with when you're sitting down to do the budget. I, I think anyone can understand that. Our net operating budget currently uh, is $990 million, so just shy of a billion dollars. And the vast majority of that budget is salaries. So, so we really tr- can't change things without laying people off. And you can't lay people off because residents are demanding the services that they're entitled to. Uh, so we do our very best to balance it. I mean, we were able to get another ambulance on board this year with 10 more paramedics, which is essential given the code zeros that we've been having. Um, we were able to continue with our 10-year uh, transit strategy, uh, which added about 49,000 additional service hours to, to the HSR. So we are making improvements where we can. Uh, McCassa Lodge, for example, is being redeveloped and expanded um, in partnership with the provincial government. So we are making um, strides forward to improve the state of repair of our roads, our sidewalks, um, but we can't do it all, all at once. Uh, so you, you you just have to plan, and we do mostly ten year capital plans. How much of a bullet did the city dodge be, uh, with COVID? Because the province came in with some money over the last couple of years, and not just a little money; they came in with a lot of money. How much? How much of a problem would that have been if that money had not arrived? Uh, that would have been severely challenging. Um, you're, you're looking at millions of dollars. Um, in cost to the municipality. Um, I had never doubted that the province would step up given that it was a pandemic. Um, And we are very grateful that they did because municipalities across the province stepped up. Our public boards of health stepped up. We helped the province manage this pandemic. Uh, Not everyone was happy with all of the decisions that were made. But at the end of the day, we manage the pan- pandemic, and we're grateful to the provincial government for, for their support. Uh, and we were talking just a moment ago about the amount of salary and benefits and everything else. At the end of this year is when most of the collective agreements run out. Inflation, as you alluded to, is high. If it continues, they're going to want more money. Is there a point at which you do have to sit and say, we either have to get rid of some people or people are just going to get considerably higher taxes. I don't know what the other option is. Grow the tax base, I suppose, although that's harder to do. What What are the other options? Um, that's going to be an interesting discussion uh, next year. Um, and, and it is going to be challenging. If, if inflation continues to go, I mean, we're seeing inflation rates in the United States. I think California is now close to 7 or 8% annual inflation, which is, is just, it's it's untenable. And, and we're watching... Um, the challenges with the goods and services, and, and that's increasing our costs. So we had to be very careful this year because a number of the projects that are on the books, we know that the, the, those, those, those projects will likely come in uh, higher than we had anticipated simply because of, of, of the challenges of getting parts and materials um, uh, to the city. So it is going to be challenging. Uh, I don't know um, how we're going to deal with it next year, um, but we have to wait and see what the CPI is when when it comes out, the inflation rate. 
Uh, and that is next year. You have a year to, to, to wait for that one. Just before I let you go, one of the things about city operating budgets, and I think most people know this, you are not permitted by law to operate a deficit in your operating budget. So any amount that you raise, you can't put into a, a debt down the road for some future generation. It has to go directly on to taxes now. Do you like that system? Is that a good system for cities? Um, given the deficits that the federal governments and provincial governments have run up uh, during this pandemic, I think it would be troublesome if municipalities in Ontario had the ability to pass a budget that was a deficit and carry that deficit over and over and over. I think what you would find is we'd be in the situation where America was many, many years ago, where a number of cities in the United States um, were virtually bankrupt and, and, and they could not handle those costs. So I'm not a fan of, of, of allowing deficits for municipalities. I know it's harder to balance the budget. But in the end, it's, it's much better financially for the, the, the residents in the city if the council comes up with a balanced budget. Ward 9 Councilor Brad Clark, uh, listen, I'll let you go, and uh, I don't know what you do after finally signing off on the budget. I don't know what the Brad Clark celebratory or just fall into bed asleep plan is, but whatever it is you do, uh, go ahead and do it. Thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. No problem, Scott. Anytime. God bless. And I don't know why I do this, but spends free time on realtor.ca just scrolling around looking at houses for sale. I I, I, I have no intention of moving. I, I don't want the hassle. I don't want to pay the money. I probably couldn't afford many of the places that are out there anyway. It certainly is not worth it. I like where I live. I like the neighborhood, but I still go on there. I lie in bed at night on my iPhone, which of course is even worse because that blue light or whatever they tell you not to look at before you go to sleep. I do everything wrong. But yeah, I go on there and I scroll around on realtor.ca often. Do you do the same thing? Scott Radley here on 900 CHML, by the way. It's it is a it is a fascination, and I didn't used to do it, and I think that the reason now, and I I mean maybe it's masochistic, I don't know, but the idea that wow, look at that house, look at that piece of crap, that's worth how much? That little thing is up for what? I mean, we do that. Those of us who are lost in this realtor.ca world, or or occasionally if you'll go on to um, HGTV and do House Hunters or whatever. Now, generally, that show drives you nuts because you watch these nice houses or potentially nice houses, and you look and you go, wait, that's $200,000 in what city? Why am I not living there? <laughs> why, why am I not selling here and going and live in some American city where I could get a nice house for fix it up for another hundred and away we go with money that anyway, we've, we've all done that. Housing has become for many of us, our fascination slash thing that drives us nuts. Well, that is not going to change. I wouldn't say, but the government, the provincial government is now bringing in new laws to theoretically help with this because the reason house prices, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, and I don't mean to patronize anybody. The reason house prices are so darn expensive is because there's not enough housing and supply and demand and all the rest. If suddenly there was a lot more houses, maybe the prices start to drop for better or for worse. If you own a house, you don't want it. If you were trying to get in, you do. Well, what if rather than keeping zoning the way it is and always has been, 
What if zoning rules were not obliterated, but softened up considerably? What if your neighborhood, what if your neighbor could, or you could knock down your house and put up a fourplex where a single family dwelling used to be? Put four, four families in one place. What about that? Let me bring in Matty Simiateki, Director of Infrastructure Institute and Professor of Geography and Planning with the University of Toronto. Matt, thank you for so much. Uh, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Sure thing. Nice to be with you, Scott. This is, uh, this is an idea that has been thrown out there before in various forms. The idea that, you know, what if we were to tell the people who run zoning in cities who cling to that strongly and try to hold on to that to make sure that neighborhoods maintain a character or whatever. What if we said you know what, as long as the house is built properly and as long as you have a maximum number of units, do whatever the heck it is you want to do. What would happen if we did that? So this has been an idea that's been bouncing around for some time and it's gained popularity, especially as we're, uh, as we're in the midst of this housing crisis with prices skyrocketing and people having a hard time of finding an affordable place to live. Um, the hope is that what you'll start to see is a lot of uh, infill and a lot of gentle intensification. And gentle is the key here, that we can start to uh, transform neighborhoods in a very subtle way, turning single-family homes into fourplexes so that uh, four households can live where one currently live, uh, and start to see a transformation, and also a transformation that's driven by uh, homeowners, uh, and that can be done by uh, small-time investors rather than only uh, allowing uh, very large-scale developers to be able to build. In our region, because of the way uh, zoning works, we tend to have a region that can be characterized as tall and sprawl. We have very tall buildings that sprout up on larger sites uh, where you can do very big development and where it covers the cost of all the planning uh, and all the investment. And conversely, then we have very sprawling parts of our region uh, where you can sprawl outward and build very uh, low-rise single-family homes uh, that are mainly auto-oriented. And everything in the middle has just been so difficult to build. It's too expensive, it's too slow, and it doesn't make financial sense. And so you just have this gap uh, and, and, and we're starting to see the implications. So a lot of the uh, uh, proposals today were to try to fill that gap and make that missing middle housing a lot more feasible and a lot quicker to build. Does the infrastructure, so l let's talk for a second because the tall and sprawl, it's a great saying, uh, in the sprawl part of it, in the suburbs where you have these single family homes, largely, does the in, is the infrastructure sufficient that if you started putting in a bunch of fourplexes on residential streets that it could handle it? Or does the city then have to come in and upgrade all the infrastructure as well? For, for uh, the type of buildings like fourplexes, gentle intensification, the infrastructure likely can handle it. Uh, there might need to be some upgrades depending on the neighborhood and depending on what was put in uh, originally. But if but the, the tall part is where you do in some instances have to upgrade uh, the infrastructure. And interestingly, also when you uh, sprawl outwards, that has very expensive infrastructure costs as well. So the numbers show that intensification is actually cheaper and more affordable because you're spreading the cost of infrastructure over a larger number of units. Whereas the way that we've been building is very expensive, both in, both in terms of the upfront cost, but also the ongoing operations and maintenance, because you're spreading uh, the cost of that infrastructure over time over a smaller number of people. You know, the real question, I guess, it, it's all politics is involved in everything. Um, politicians are going to be aware of these kind of things. Would the people who are their voters, would they accept this? If I mean, you, me, whatever, we've bought a house on a street 
And the house that we bought, we part of the reason we bought it is because we wanted a nice quiet street. And then all of a sudden, three or four or five homes get knocked down and fourplexes be, get put in. Are, are, are the people going to accept that? Well, this is in many ways going to be on, uh, on the ballot uh, at this upcoming election. And you've seen that the government uh, had a housing affordability task force that made a number of recommendations that went a lot further than the government uh, went today with their proposal. And the government also talks about collaborating with municipalities. And I think a lot of that is, relates to the politics that many the implications of these decisions could be faced on in the quiet neighborhoods, in what are considered stable neighborhoods, uh, and in many cases in the suburbs that are uh, this, uh, this government's electoral base. Uh, and so really trying to understand the electoral politics of this are significant. Households and the homeowners are often the ones that vote uh, and in higher rates. So again, targeting policy to that demographic uh, has been very significant over time. But it's also meant that it's hard to intervene and make the types of changes in neighborhoods that would be needed to make housing more affordable. So there's a real uh, tightrope that's being walked here. Is there such a thing? You hear the phrase neighborhood character all the time. Is that a thing that should be in consideration when we're talking about this? Well, everyone wants to live in a neighborhood with character. And I think I think the question is, is the character in the bricks and mortar or is it in the people? And can we create neighborhoods that grow and enable more people to live in them while still maintaining the vibrancy and what makes them great? And in many cases, it's actually having more people there so that they're thriving, so that the local shops can thrive, so that the parks are busy, so that your kids have someone to play with, so that the schools are successful. That's what a, a neighborhood character is uh, when, when, when I think of neighborhood character. And so it, it's not about obliterating neighborhoods and, uh, you know, and making them anonymous places. It's really about creating the types of spaces where more people can live, where your kids can have, uh, you know, can, can have an affordable place for them to live. I think a lot of people who live in single family homes and who raise families there are now looking around and saying, where exactly are my children going to live? Are they going to be able to live yeah. nearby, uh, nearby where I am? And that's, I, that's why you're starting to see a, a change in perspective on this. Uh, and, and people who may have traditionally been opposed to intensification starting to say, actually, this isn't necessarily about me, but this is about the next generation. This is about my kids and my children's children. Where are they all going to live? And could they possibly afford to be in a place that's uh, nearby me and have the same quality of life that I had? And I agree with 99.9% of what you just said, except <laughs> until it comes to the point where someone says, I agree with intensification. I agree with this so my kids have a place to live. As long as my neighbor doesn't put up a three-story home that blocks the sunlight from my backyard, then no chance are we allowing a neighborhood character to be changed. I, I think everybody is in favor of this until it's in their neighborhood. And literally in their backyard. And I think that's yes, the most yes. challenging part of this, that, it, it, that, that planning is both uh, at a regional scale, but it's also hyper-local. It's also literally in your backyard if your neighbor puts up something that's, that's taller than what's there now or cuts down uh, some trees uh, to, to put up uh, a, a new unit or, uh, you know, or, or cast a shadow over your property or has a, a site that people can now peer into your backyard uh, where you're having uh, barbecues. You know, so all of these are, are very hyper-local. And I think what we're learning is that a, a city is a place that does have to be able to change and does have to find ways of, of compromising. We need to find ways of mediating the winners and the losers. And I think so far, uh, the losers are being so excluded uh, because of the affordability challenge. I think for many people in this city, we're starting to say, actually, let's go and re, uh, re-examine 
some of the ways that we've done planning and some of the ways that we've kept frozen our our, our uh, neighborhoods in time uh, and it meant that actually they're declining in population, not growing, uh, and trying to say, can we do this better and create affordable, uh, great places for people to live? Here in Hamilton, and we only have a couple of minutes left, here in Hamilton, um, recently we had the, you know, a vigorous, and I think that may be an understatement, discussion about whether to cap the urban boundary, uh, no more sprawl that we are going to maintain where we are right now, which means we're going up, as you say, tall, not sprawl. The, 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 once you've said you can't go out, there is only one other direction really to go. That's to go up or more dense. If anybody voted for stopping the urban boundary, can they reasonably with, can they reasonably then say, I don't want a home in my neighborhood to be taller? Or vice versa, if, if you said, I want the, you know, well, leave it there. If you said, I don't want any more sprawl, did you, by extension, automatically say, I'm okay with taller homes, more dense homes in my neighborhood? If you believe that the region is can, can continue to grow, and if you think that we have a housing affordability challenge, then if we're not going out, we're going up. And I think the question about going up uh, really has to be about can we do this in a responsible way? Uh, we don't we don't want to live in overcrowded neighborhoods, and we don't want to live in places where there's no sunshine. That's I don't think that's uh, what people are proposing. I think the key is to find ways that you balance the the benefits of intensification, which are around uh, the community spaces and the vitality and the shops that can now thrive that are currently. Uh, you know, really struggling. The main streets that 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 have struggled through the pandemic and were faced with uh, online shopping before that. Uh, you know, can you create schools that are vibrant because they have enough children uh, and neighborhoods that are walkable? This is what you're voting for if you're voting about going up. It's not just about the density. It's about what the intensification allows our neighborhoods to pr- to provide and to create, which is a which is a vibrancy that's very hard when it's when it's much more low density and sprawling. Maddie Simiatiki, uh, really terrific stuff. Thank you for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Nice being with you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.